Well, good morning. Peace be with you. This text that we're looking at this morning, it's one of the most tense and dramatic texts, I think, in the entire New Testament. It tells us about a major conflict that took place between Peter and Paul, and it took place in front of everyone. And, you know, it's, it's always an awkward thing when a fight breaks out in church. No one really likes that. But when a fight breaks out between Peter and Paul, I mean, this is apostolic drama going on in this text. And it's, it's a bit uncomfortable. And some people throughout church history, some theologians, they've tried to avoid this text or they've watered it down or some have suggested that actually this wasn't a real fight. This was a plan that Peter and Paul came up with to teach a lesson to the church but that's just not so. But there's a lot about this text that can make you feel uncomfortable. Why would Peter and Paul at a church potluck get into kind of a huge argument and kind of throw the entire church uh, into disarray? I submit to you though this morning, and I hope you'll see that if we're willing to press into the awkwardness and the discomfort of this text, there's so much in it. And so it has so much to say to us as a church, and as a people, as a community here. As we've said every week, Galatians is a book about freedom. It's Paul's manifesto of a Christian's freedom. And yet often, we don't live free as Christians. Often I look at Christians and I look at my own life and we don't feel free. We haven't experienced to the full this freedom that Jesus promises us. And I think there's a lot of reasons for this. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about, for some of us, we don't live free and we don't feel free because of stuff from our past, that it's, it's following us around like a ball and chain around our leg, and it keeps us from living into the freedom of Christ. But there's other reasons. I think another big reason why we don't feel free and we don't live free is other Christians often, sadly. It's the church. That if you were to ask most people how they would describe their church experiences, I don't think a place of incredible freedom would make the top five lists of descriptors. That the church is often a place where you don't feel free at all, where you, you feel weighed down by expectations, by guilt, and by shame. And I love this text so much because in this text, it's, it's a gift that Paul's given us. Because in this text, Paul gives us a vision, I think, for what a community of freedom can look like. What it, what it could look like for the church to be a place of absolute freedom. But it also helps us see what threatens that freedom, the greatest threat to that freedom. And Paul tells us how to answer that threat. And so I want to look at this passage under those three headings. We're going to look at the vision Paul gives us for being a community of freedom. We're going to look at the threat what threatens that? And then we're going to talk about how to answer and respond to that threat. But starting, what's the vision we're given here? What's the vision for a community, a church marked by freedom? In verse 12, Paul writes, Before certain men came from James, he, that's Peter, was eating with Gentiles. Now that, that verse might not stick out to you. It might not seem strange. But for any Jew in that day to read these words, that would have been an absolute shocking statement. 
You know, as Dr. Pennington hit on last week, the issue, uh, the, the racial tensions that existed between Jews and Gentiles is a really, really big deal in the context of the New Testament. And if you are like me or like I was for many years, when I would be reading the New Testament and I'd come upon the issues of Jews and Gentiles, as much as I wouldn't want to, my eyes would kind of glaze over at times because it just seemed kind of a problem way back then. It seemed irrelevant. But, but I submit to you, if you press in to this Jew-Gentile issue, it actually has a profound word to speak to us as a church. You see, Jews and Gentiles, they, it's hard to describe the, the chasm that existed between these two people groups. There was racial tensions, uh, and we know something about racial tensions in our country, but I don't think they come close to the racial tensions that existed between Jews and Gentiles. Peter was a Jew, and Jews in that day, they had just a deep and abiding disdain for Gentiles. They viewed them and saw them as filthy and unclean. They called them dogs. And that doesn't translate perfectly well in our culture because we buy clothes for our dogs and put them up at resorts. Some of you share your ice cream cones with dogs. Like I watch you do it. Uh, and so we love our dogs. Like they sleep in bed with us. It's like dog. But in that day, dogs were seen as the most vile, filthy, gross of animals. And when Jews would look at Gentiles, and Gentiles being all non-Jews, they would look at them as vile, gross, filthy people. They ate unclean food, foods, they wore unclean clothes, they lived unclean lives. And because of this, no pious Jew would ever consider entering the home of a Gentile, let alone actually sitting down to a meal with them. Because if you sat down and shared a meal with them, you would be defiled. And so all of that's the backdrop. And then Paul's telling us here that Peter was eating with Gentiles. And so how in the world did that take place? What, what happened to bring this about that, that Peter was able to cross this you know, incredible gulf that existed between these two people groups? And the answer is found in Acts 10. And it's one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. Peter, we're told, he goes up on a rooftop to pray. And as he's praying, he's hungry, he's thinking about food. As he's praying, he falls into this trance. And this trance isn't like, you know, you're so hungry, you start seeing food everywhere like in Looney Tunes. This is a vision that God brings into Peter's life. And the vision that God gives Peter is this sheet comes down from heaven. And in this sheet, there are clean animals. These are animals that any Jew would eat, you know, cows and chickens. But there are also unclean animals. There are pigs and lobsters and alligators. And as Peter is sitting there trying to figure out what in the world this vision of this sheet with all of these animals, and it means God speaks to Peter and tells him, rise, kill, and eat, which is the life verse of every redneck, right? Rise, kill, and eat. Now, Peter responds in classic Peter fashion, no way. He says, I have never eaten any unclean food. I'm not going to start now. He's arguing with God. And so God does it again. He gives him the vision again, and he tells him it again. And then he does it a third time. 
three times, God says, rise, kill, and eat. You can eat clean foods and unclean foods. And God actually says to Peter, do not call anything impure or unclean that I have made clean. And so as Peter's wrestling through, okay, is God saying these foods aren't unclean? As he's wrestling through that, someone knocks at the door and who's there but some quote-unquote unclean Gentiles. And these unclean Gentiles, they say, hey, we're looking for a man named Peter. We have this friend Cornelius. Cornelius has heard about this guy, Jesus, and we were wondering if you would come and tell us about Jesus and the way to salvation. And all of a sudden, it kind of clicks for Peter. The vision wasn't just about clean and unclean foods. It was about clean and unclean people, that there, there is no clean and unclean distinction anymore. And so Peter goes to Cornelius' house. He goes inside the house, which he never would have done before. And he starts preaching the gospel. Now, everyone there would have been kind of shocked that this Jew is in a Gentile's house. And so Peter actually tells all of the people gathered there, you yourselves know how it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. After he says this, Peter proceeds to start preaching the gospel and something that's never happened to me before. But before he even gets to the altar call, the time of response, the Holy Spirit falls in power and all of the people gathered there start repenting of their sin, confessing their sin, putting their faith in Christ. And they ask Peter, hey, can we get baptized? Like we, we are all in. And Peter's like, I don't see why not. And so Peter, I mean, he touches and he baptizes these uncircumcised Gentiles. And he says, you now are a part of the family of God as you are. Well, this causes all sorts of drama back in the church in Jerusalem. They call Peter and they say, hey, what's this? We heard that you were eating with Gentiles and that you even baptized these Gentiles. What's going on? And so they had this huge debate about whether or not the Gentiles needed to become Jews in order to become Christians. And in the end, Peter, he just shared the experience. He's like, listen, I was praying. I was hungry. God gave me this vision. It happened three times. This is what he said. And so they, they blessed the ministry to the Gentiles. And after that moment, after that, that whole encounter, the gospel began to explode in the Gentile world. One of the places that exploded was the city of Antioch. Now, Antioch was the third largest city in the world at the time. It was a very diverse cosmopolitan city. In Antioch, you had Greeks, you had Romans, you also had Jews, but you had people from Iran, from India, from China. And what Acts tells us is that the gospel went out and it was bearing fruit in all of these people's lives across ethnicities, races, all of these people were coming together, worshiping Jesus together, eating meals together, sharing lives with one another. And it was a beautiful sight, thousands of people coming to faith. And Peter, he's right there in the thick of it. He's mixing it up with them. He's laughing with them. He's eating with them. And, and I just wonder how disorienting that must have been for Peter. Could you imagine for 40 years, you've been taught these people are unclean and these foods are unclean. And then God does this work and now he's eating with these people and he's, you know, encountering different cultures. And then on top of that, like he's getting to eat for the very first time 
cheeseburgers and smoked pork loin and bacon-wrapped scallops and lobster mac and cheese. And, you know, he's like, this is freedom. Like, this is freedom. I mean, it's a beautiful sight. I was in New York City this past week, and I was studying this text, you know, throughout the week. And, you know, at one point we were in one city block, I heard six different languages as we were walking down the street. And the smell of the foods, you know, all different kinds of foods. And I was just thinking that had to be what the church in Antioch felt like. All these different people from all these different backgrounds together worshiping Jesus. And I think this church, this church in Antioch, it, it serves as a great example, a great picture of what a community of freedom looks like. One, there's a tremendous amount of diversity different ethnicities, languages, heritages, preferences. And here's the thing. They didn't have to abandon those things to be a part of the church. Like in coming, up, coming to the church, you give up sin, but you don't give up your story. And so they didn't all have to come to one language or agree on one type of right food or anything like that. They came with their stories, tremendous diversity, but there was also absolute equality. That there weren't, wasn't a hierarchy of, Who's more valuable than someone else? Everyone was seen as equal, diversity, equality. And then there was unity, beautiful unity. Because it wasn't like they just came and worshiped together, sat next to one another in church, although that's great. They went out to lunch afterwards with each other. They shared their lives with one another. And it was in this city of Antioch that the name Christian originated. See, before then, people looked at what we call Christians and they saw them as kind of a sect of Jews. But what happened in Antioch, people would, were watching it happen and they didn't know what to call this group of people because there were Jews, but there are also Greeks and Romans and Persians. And they were all living in community together. And it was so confusing to the world. And they, they didn't know what do we call these people? And it's like, well, they're always talking about Jesus and they always want to live like Jesus. So let's just call them little Christ, Christians, which is what Christian means. What a picture. What a community. And how does that vision speak to our church? I think it speaks to us in a lot of ways. The one I want to hold before you this morning is I want you to see that the church in Antioch teaches us that there's no one right kind of Christian. There is no one right kind of Christian. There's no one right way to be a Christian. To be a community of freedom requires us to recognize we all have different stories and backgrounds and ethnicities and temperaments and gifts and wirings and not only is that something that we need to just tolerate, it should be something that we celebrate because there's no one cookie-cutter mold that all Christians need to fit into. And I think one of the things that really robs the church of living free is our constant compulsion that, that exists within us, the constant compulsion to play the comparison game. And that, that nagging sense that we all have, that there actually is one right way to be a Christian. There is one right answer to every issue we face in life. I mean, I, I hear the conversations, I see the debates, everything from 
how you parent your kid to you know, what Bible translation you read to what diet you're on, that, that we're all looking for answers, but I think oftentimes we're, we're looking for advice, but really what we're looking for is who's getting it right? Like, who's doing this right? Which Christian, which one's actually the right Christian way? We never consider the fact that maybe there are, there's more than one way and more than one right answer. A few years ago, issue of schooling, and what's the right way to educate your child. It came up and it was causing some divisions in our church. You had some people who were saying, well, you shouldn't, you shouldn't outsource the education of your children, so we homeschool. Then you had other people saying, I need to outsource the education of my children because I'm not a very good educator, and so I'm gonna send my kids to private school because I don't want them to go into the public schools. And then you had other people saying, well, I actually believe in the public schools and I wanna support the public schools, so I'm gonna send my kids to the public school. And a debate broke out. Well, who's getting it right? Which one of those answers is right? What's the right way to educate your children? And it didn't seem like anyone could comprehend the fact that maybe every one of those answers is right. You know, as pastors, we have some pastors who send their kids to JCPS, some who homeschool, some who private school. What if they're all right? Take another issue women working outside of the home when they have kids. This was another big issue in our church and it's a big issue in a lot of churches. You know, there, there has been debate. Well, what's, what's the right thing? Should, should women work outside the home or should they be stay-at-home moms and raise the kids? What's the right answer? Well, what if, what if they both can be right answers? What if there isn't one right answer? Community of Freedom recognizes, hey, their story is their story, my story is my story, and we can learn from one another, but there's no one right way to be a Christian. We can recognize that there's diversity in gifts and callings and stories, but we don't all have to look alike. There's diversity, but there's unity, and there's equality, and this was the church in Antioch, and it had to be beautiful. It wasn't a monolithic thing. It was, it was incredibly diverse, and it had to be beautiful, but then something happened. And this is where we get to the threat. What threatens this vision? The picture we're given in Galatians 2, 2 is that this church in Antioch is flourishing. People are worshiping together. They're laughing together. They're feasting together. Everything is going really well, and then Paul leaves to go preach the gospel probably to some surrounding cities. And he's probably, as he's preaching, he's probably telling everyone about what's happening in the Antioch church. And then Paul comes back and the laughter's died off and the feasting stopped. And he goes into worship and all of the Jews are sitting in the front and everyone else is sitting in the back. Afterwards, he goes to the church potluck and all of the Jews are sitting together and all of the Gentiles are sitting together. The church that was once marked by diversity, equality, unity, and joy is now segregated along, along racial lines. What happened? Well, Paul tells us in verse 12 that certain men from James paid the church in Antioch a visit. Now, James was Jesus's brother. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And so these are men, 
They were leaders in that church who came to Antioch. I, I want to be clear, I don't think they actually represented James. And you can go to Acts 15 and you can see that even there, James and the other apostles say that some men came out of their church and caused trouble, but they didn't actually represent them. But whatever the case, these men rolled into the church in Antioch and they saw the laughter and the joy and the diversity and they started shaking their heads and wagging their fingers. And basically what they said is the party's over. Jewish Christians, you should not be worshiping or even associating with the Gentiles unless those Gentiles are willing to adopt our laws, our customs, and the men are willing to be circumcised. Otherwise, yeah, Jesus died for them and they might believe in Jesus, but they're still somewhat unclean and they need to be quarantined to parts of the church. They are inferior to us. And everyone needs to know that. And we need to have that reflected in how we sit. And so these men come in and the church starts to divide. And, and Paul gets angry with these men, these Judaizers, but he gets really angry with Peter. Because Peter... It's one of the leaders. He's one of the apostles. When these men rolled in, Peter should have been the one to stand up and confront them. But where's Peter when these men from James roll into town? Peter who had this incredible vision. Peter who saw the spirit move in the lives of Gentiles. He's sitting at a table with only Jews. He's just fallen in line with what these men said. And Paul makes it clear in verse 12 that it wasn't a change of conviction on Peter's part. It's not like he went back to the scriptures and said, wait, my experiences were wrong. It wasn't a change of conviction. It was just cowardice. For before certain men from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself. Why? Fearing the circumcision party. Peter didn't want to get into a fight with the Judaizers, and so he just quietly went along in fear. And in doing so, Peter struck a sword of division into the very heart of the church and all of the other leaders followed with him. This is why Paul tells us in verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Paul comes back, the church is segregated, the freedom's gone, and he's looking around at the lead. Where are the leaders? Oh, they're just, they're just going with the flow? Peter failed as a leader, and then he led everyone else, including Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Barnabas, the guy you always want there with you. Barnabas, the one that the church in Jerusalem sent out to the church in Antioch to go investigate, to make sure it was a real work of the Spirit. And he came back and said, absolutely. All of them, they retreated in fear, and they acted hypocritically. Now, there are layers of sin here. But at the root of it all is the sin of legalism. That's the sin of the Judaizers. Legalism is adding anything to the gospel for one's justification before God. Legalism is Jesus plus fill in the blank means that God loves me and I am a good and true Christian. And so in that church, legalism took the shape of Jesus plus being circumcised, Jesus plus keeping the Mosaic law. In our day, those things are not things that are pushed real hard in the church on people. But there are a lot of forms of legalism. Some churches will say Jesus plus baptism by immersion or you're not saved. Others will say 
Jesus plus speaking in tongues. Others will say Jesus plus abstaining from alcohol. Jesus plus not watching R-rated movies or not doing yoga. Jesus plus dressing a certain way. Jesus plus voting a certain way. Jesus plus parenting a certain way. It doesn't matter what the plus is. It's Jesus plus something means that you are a good Christian and that you are loved by God and you have right standing with God. It's adding something to Jesus. And what legalism does, in essence, it says Jesus is not enough and the cross is not enough. It robs the cross of its power. It robs God of his glory. And it robs the community of the freedom that Jesus purchased for it. Legalism is the root sin here. But legalism always produces bad fruit. It doesn't just stop with that teaching. Sometimes legalism produces pride in people. You know, especially the legalists who think, I've got this thing down and I'm better than most. But typically, legalism breeds fear. And that's what we see in Peter here. That the root sin is legalism. But what that does to the culture of this church, it spreads fear. Legalism, it always creates a culture of fear. People live afraid. They fear that they're not measuring up. They fear that they're not holy enough. They fear that they don't really belong. And I can't help but wonder how many Christians and how many churches live with that cloud of fear hanging over them. I can't help but wonder how many of you here this morning feel like you're just not very good at the Christian life. You feel like, I might... I think I'm a Christian because I prayed this prayer, but I don't know. I don't, I don't feel like I measure up, and I'm certainly not as good as this person or this person or this person. Fear, when it takes hold of a church, it robs the church of freedom. And I want to be really clear here that when you have a culture of fear in a church, that means that you are not keeping in step with the Spirit because fear is not a fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so on. Fear, fear is not a fruit of the Spirit. Paul actually says in 2 Timothy 1.7, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And so if the Spirit's at work, we're not walking afraid or, or worried about what other people think. If the Spirit's at work, we're walking in power, we're walking in love, and we're walking in self-control. Peter and this crew, they didn't demonstrate any of that. And this fear, when it, when it goes full, when it, full bore, it manifests itself in the form of hypocrisy. This is the cycle. This is the, the progression. Legalism, it leads to fear. And then fear leads to hypocrisy. And hypocrisy in the scriptures, it doesn't just mean saying one thing and doing another. Hypocrisy more means play acting. It means playing the religion game. And playing the religion game, it might make the legalists happy, but it makes everyone else miserable. Peter and his crew, they're miserable because because of their own duplicity. They're not living in line with their convictions, but they're just afraid. Gentiles in the church had to be miserable because they were marginalized and looked down upon. The implied message was, you're not fully cleansed from sin. You're still morally stained. 
Legalism leads to fear. Fear leads to hypocrisy. Hypocrisy leads to misery. And what I've found is this can like spiral out of control in churches. That you have legalism. You have to do this. And everyone gets afraid. And it's like, all right, I better fall in line here. But then you can never quite fall in line. You can never quite live up to the legalist standards. And so you start playing the religion game and you kind of, you hide the dark spots in your life and you hide your imperfections and you put on your religious face so that you can show everyone that you're a really good Christian in, in hypocrisy. And then what does that do? It just feeds the legalism. And that legalism just feeds the fear. And that fear just feeds the hypocrisy. So if we go back to the example of a woman working outside of the home while her children are along, the legalists come in and say, well, if you, were, if you really loved your kids or if you, you really love the church, you wouldn't work outside the home. You would just be there, which is not a biblical command at all. I think there's actually a whole lot of evidence that women are, can and should work outside the home. But they come in, and then what does that do? It, it grabs hold, and everyone gets afraid, and the, the women who do work outside the home start to wonder, do I really belong here? They, they, they feel a sense of fear. The women who don't work outside the home, maybe they feel a sense of pride. And then some people start hiding. And then it's like, well, I'm not working outside the home, so I'll just do multi-level marketing. That's kind of a good middle ground where I won't get myself in trouble. And then it just spirals. It's like, yeah, you shouldn't, not only should you not work outside the home, you should also fill in the blank. This is why Paul's so fired up. Why Paul uses such strong language. Paul knew that while sin was a great threat to the church, an even greater threat was legalism. And to be clear, legalism is a form of sin. But it's fascinating. You know, Paul wrote a number of letters to a number of different churches, but he uses his strongest language in any of his letters here to the Galatians. I mean, he wrote a letter to the Corinthian church. And if you don't know, the Corinthian church was a messed up church. There was one guy in the church who was sleeping with his stepmom and bragging about it. There are a bunch of people in the Corinthian church that would show up to church early and get drunk on communion wine before they even had the service. You know what Paul, how he begins his letters to the, the Corinthians? He writes, I thank God for his grace in your life. You know how Paul begins his letter to the Galatians? I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by his grace. Paul's fire and his fierceness comes out more in the Galatian church because of their legalism than it does in any of the other churches he writes to because of their sin. Legalism exchanges freedom for slavery and it destroys community because it demands conformity. I just think there are so many in our midst, so many of you here this morning, you live with an underlying spirit of despair because you feel like you can never measure up you don't feel free because you feel like all of the expectations on you are suffocating. And so you, you've just fallen into the trap of playing the religion game. And that's not freedom. And I've seen this destroy churches again and again and again. I've never seen a church where legalism has taken hold and thought, man, that's really working out well for them. Like they're really flourishing with that culture. It always leads to death. And so how do we respond to this threat? Like, how do, you, how do you confront legalism when it rises in our midst? 
Well, Paul, I want to say he calls Peter out in front of everyone. And I think that's something you should do about 1% of the time when you confront someone. The reason I think Paul was justified in doing it here is because Peter's sin was a sin committed before the whole church. And his, his failure affected everyone. And everyone needed to know that what Peter had done was wrong. Most of the time, we don't need to call people out in front of everyone else. We should call people out one-on-one in love. But how do we do that? How do you confront the threat of legalism? How does, how does Paul do it? The way Paul confronts Peter here is fascinating because Paul, he could have nailed Peter to the wall. He could have shamed him. He could have said, Peter, you are such a racist. He could have said, Peter, you're such a hypocrite. He could have said, Peter, you're such a coward. And what you did here, it's, you've been doing this your whole life. Remember that night not too long ago when you told Jesus, I'm going to be with you to the end. And then some girl came and said, hey, aren't you with Jesus? And you're like, I don't know the man. Like you're a coward and you're always a coward. But he doesn't do any of that. And he doesn't just scream, you're a legalist. Paul confronts Peter with the gospel. Paul says to him, Peter, you're not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Verse 14, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. The answer to legalism, it's not laws against legalism. The answer to legalism is the gospel. And what Peter does here is, or what Paul does here is he says to Peter, for you to draw back from eating with the Gentiles out of racism or fear, he says, you've forgotten the gospel. You're not actually living in line with it. And that's why in the very next verse, Paul writes, I think somewhat tongue-in-cheek, he says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Like, we are people of the covenant. We have the heritage. We're not like them. But, but yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, Paul uses the word justified a lot there, and the reason why is because this is the first time in Paul's letter to the Galatians that he gives his summary of the gospel. And what is Paul's summary of the gospel? Justification by faith. Justification means to be declared innocent, to be declared declared righteous, to be declared holy. And what Paul is hammering home and reminding Peter of is that at the heart of the gospel is the truth that we are declared righteous in God's sight, not by anything we do, not by our behavior, not by our ethnicity. We're declared righteous in God's sight by faith and faith alone. That comes by grace and grace alone. That we get in not because we're good people. We get in because our God is a good God. We don't contribute one ounce to our salvation. When we lose sight of that, which by the way, if Peter can lose sight of it, don't think that we can't lose sight of it. When we start thinking, yeah, but, but I mean, a good Christian or a real Christian does X, Y, and Z, and this is, I, I can trust that I'm a Christian based on the basis of all of these things. 
when that happens in our life, like we lose sight of the gospel and without the gospel, our hearts have to continually seek out ways to boost our self-righteousness. Like when we don't know that we're loved and safe with God and Christ alone, then, then we've got to like find something to find some sense of security. And usually what we go to is legalism and comparison. And that might make us feel better temporarily, but legalism and comparison kills community. It's an eyes grace. Grace always brings people together and it leads to feasting. Legalism and comparison, they're always like a bucket of cold water dumped on the fire of God's spirit in the church. This is a truth we never move beyond. My prayer for us as a people, like we are a diverse church and we're actually growing in diversity. Diversity as, as we commonly think about it in our culture, diversity of races and ethnicities, diversity of ages. We have, Sojourn used to be, you had to be between the ages of 17 and 25 to be a part of it. Now look around. Like we have diversity of gifts and backgrounds and stories. A whole lot of you grew up in the church and like you could make insider jokes about what it was like to grow up in the church and you would laugh, but a whole lot of us didn't. We have different stories. Some of us are single. Some of us are married. Some of us have a bunch of kids. Some of us don't have any kids. And like, it's so easy to look at these differences and say, okay, but who's the real Christian here? Instead of looking and saying, we're all real Christians. You know why? Because our salvation is not contingent upon what we do. It's contingent upon what Jesus has done. And that has to be the ruling truth in our midst. It needs to lead every conversation. We don't need to be breathing down each other's necks about the right way to be a Christian. You know, I, I heard a story a couple of weeks ago about an older believer in our church who was talking to a believer that was a generation younger than them. And these two went to the same church uh, years ago. And the older believer said to the younger believer, I need to repent to you. Because when you were young, when you were in middle school and high school, I put a lot of pressure on you about what it means to be a good Christian. Like I rode you hard about how you weren't living up to the standards of the Bible. And I'm haunted to this day by it. And if I could do anything, I would go back and instead of telling you all the things that you need to change in your life, if I could go back more than anything else, I would just tell you that God loves you fully in Christ. I want us to be a church where whether we're gathered one-on-one -on -one or we're gathered in community, that is the central truth that shapes us because that is the truth that leads to freedom. Martin Luther, I love this quote. I've shared it with you before, but I'll share it with you again because it never gets old. He says, the truth of the gospel is that we're justified by faith alone is the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. Not just into their heads, beat it into our own heads. I know some of you are thinking, well, does this mean we never confront sin? Of course not. Paul confronts sin here. What it means is, we confront sin when it's necessary, 
but we confront with the gospel. And in the midst of our confrontation, we saturate it with the gospel. And we recognize that while sin is a great threat to us, an even greater threat is legalism. And so I want to leave you with two questions for you to reflect upon, trusting that the Spirit is at work in your lives. The first is, in what ways have you let your freedom be stolen or be marginalized by others? In what ways have you succumbed to fear? In what ways are you playing the religion game? And then the second question is, in what ways have you either intentionally or unintentionally stepped on the freedom of others? In what ways have you put expectations on others that were absolutely crushing? In what ways have you been harsh or rigid? In what ways have you been dogmatic in your community group? In what ways have you tried to be the Holy Spirit, not recognizing that life is complex? And most Christians I know are doing the best that they can. I you to think through that. And I want you to talk through it in community. And I pray that we are able to actually move forward, take steps in moving forward, living into the freedom we have in Christ. And we have freedom to do this kind of work, to ask these questions, to examine our life, because we're justified by faith. On the night of Jesus' betrayal, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that's broken for you. And then he took the cup. So this is the cup of the new covenant, the cup of my blood. Pour it out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And what we have here in this meal is a reminder that our salvation rests upon the grace of God alone. That Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed so ours didn't have to be for our sins. And so when we come to the table, we're reminded we are loved by God and we are accepted by God and we are free in Christ. So if you're here and you're a Christian, I encourage you to come and to be reminded. If you are here and you're not a Christian, I just want to plead with you. Like everything in life leads to slavery except for Jesus. Jesus came so that you might flourish. And I would encourage you, if you've never put your trust in him, to do so this morning. Let me pray.